We're going to uh, pick up where we left off uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism. I believe we're on Lord's Day 21, and uh, in that section of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, this is going to be an interesting discussion today, I think, as we think about the one part of the Apostles' Creed uh, where we begin to confess the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so let's ask for the Lord's blessing on our catechism time. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we humble ourselves before you, so grateful for the way you have purchased us, made us yours, and blessed us, O Lord, with everything in Christ, the riches of an inheritance that is eternal. And thank you for collecting us and gathering us into your covenant community here on earth, and that we get to enjoy a day that is a holiday and a blessing, a day of feasting and rejoicing. And we pray, Father, that you would bless our catechism time today on this holy day. Bless the, the children and the respective classes. May the things that they learn uh, augment and supplement the things that they learn in the home and here in worship. And we pray, Father, for our time together as we discuss what it means to confess the forgiveness of sins. And may you receive all the glory and may we be edified. For this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so Heidelberg Catechism, guilt, grace, gratitude in the grace section, which is uh, questions 12 through 85. It exposits the Apostles' Creed. So when we say the Apostles' Creed, uh, we confess something in each one of those lines. It's not something that we should just say without giving any thought to. Um, so last week, uh, we looked at that part where we say, I believe, I believe a holy Catholic church What's the next line? All right, one person knows. The communion of saints. What's the next line? What's that? The forgiveness of sins. Now this is what we want to think about today. Now remember that the Apostles' Creed like the Nicene Creed, which is so similar, gives us the, the bare bones of Christianity. It gives us, in many ways, the, the pillars of Christianity. If we deny any part of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, we have a different religion than Christianity. Now, it's possible for a new Christian to be confused about some things in the Creed and not understand them, or, but you can't reject anything that is in the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed. These are things that unite the entire church, Catholic or universal, throughout the world and throughout time together. Uh, doctrine of the Trinity, doctrine of creation, doctrine of Christ's incarnation, the virgin birth, the resurrection, uh, his death on the cross, uh, the Holy Spirit, the, the church, the communion of saints, and then this one, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is a big one. Someone's car alarm is going off. It's going to annoy me. It's like the Bible zipper at the end of worship that uh, always gets me. Now the car alarm during Sunday school. But I have to blot, block it out. <clears throat> um, let's see here. Oh, Heidelberg Catechism. If you go to Lord's Day 21, let's look at that together. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 21. So it's, it, there's three questions bunched together. 
in my opinion, it's not the most helpful way that they grouped this. Um, it probably would have been better to split up uh, questions 54 and 55 into one Lord's Day, since that deals with the Holy Catholic Church and communion of saints. And then 56, which we're on today, really could be its own Lord's Day in its own right, but then you'd have to divide up something else elsewhere. But this is what we want to think about today, this line. So question 56, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's atonement, will never hold against me any of my sins, nor my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, in His grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ, now, this is a one, like so many parts of the Heidelberg Catechism, this is a wonderful answer, a very pastoral, comforting answer. You've you, you got to love Reformed theology, the heart of Reformed theology, you know, as expressed in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's so comforting and so gospel-saturated. And, uh, as, and this question is definitely that. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that it, uh, tucked into this question, or the answer is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because when it says, he grants me the righteousness of Christ, we're talking about the doctrine of justification. So don't let anyone ever tell you, um, maybe a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox Christian, that, well, the doctrine of justification by faith isn't in the the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which dates back to the early church. Um, We want to point out that, well, we confess, the church has always confessed, the forgiveness of sins. And what does that mean? Remember, these are summaries. And so if we click on that, the forgiveness of sins, what drops down, but more than just God granting forgiveness, but also making us acceptable in his sight, which, according to the Apostle Paul, requires... Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. And so you, and now the Heidelberg is going to flesh that out a little more in uh, questions um, 60, sorry, 60 and 61, which is wonderful teaching on justification. But right here, it's already tucked into this line in the Apostles' Creed. And so I, I want to draw your attention to that because uh, when we say the Apostles' Creed, when we say the Nicene Creed and say, the forgiveness of sins, what we mean by that is everything that's in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, as Paul teaches in Romans and Galatians and the Bible teaches elsewhere. Any questions on that before we move on? That's an important point to get. Important point to get. I guarantee it'll come up at some point if you have any discussion at all with a Roman Catholic and you say, I believe the, the, uh, the, uh, we confess the Apostles' Creed or if you ever talk about justification. And that's helpful to, to know, to go back to question 56, this one that we have before us, um, and how it speaks about the righteousness of Christ. Yeah? The creed, yeah. Yeah, so we have a disagreement, just as we would on, on several other. We would have, 
we, we would understand some of these lines differently. And uh, so Rome denies that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, is, inc- is credited to you. They deny that in the Council of Trent. This is why, this is really the reason why I'm not a Catholic and why you should not be a Catholic. And if you're not a Catholic for a different reason, it's a wrong reason. It really comes down to this, our difference on this understanding. It's not because, well, we don't like statues and priests in funny costumes. That really has very little to do with it. It has to do with uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone and our understanding here. And on authority, you know, we have a difference when we understand a holy Catholic church. So when we say a holy Catholic church, we're talking about the church universal. When a Roman Catholic says, I believe a holy Catholic church, they're thinking of Roman Catholic church, which, remember, didn't come to be what it was until long after Constantine, long after this was ever crafted. Big point to understand. Big point to understand. Because we don't want to give up words like Holy Catholic Church. We don't want to give anything up. We don't want to give up creeds, confessions, catechisms. They're ours. And, uh, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church is something that develops in, in, with the papacy through the Middle Ages. Um, but it doesn't have a monopoly on all the church uh, going back to, you know, before the era of Constantine. And so, same with the forgiveness of sins. And this is why the Reformers would, you know, if you read the Reformers, they'll, they'll pull out quotes from early church fathers where maybe they don't have a, a, a very developed doctrine of justification by faith alone, but in many places you can find them talking about uh, you know, God granting his, the righteousness of Christ to us, and that it's only faith, it's the instrument uh, for us to uh, stand before God. Again, it's not developed as neatly as Luther's or Calvin's because it wasn't a controversial subject at that time, but there's enough in the early fathers, people like Augustine and Chrysostom and Ambrose, uh, to see that, yeah, we're not, we're not coming up with a different view altogether from the ancient church, but this is, this is divergent from Rome. And it's not till the Council of Trent in the, in the 16th century that Rome condemns the, the Protestant understanding of justification by faith alone. Important for us to understand. Very important. Of course, nowadays, you talk to evangelicals, and they don't even know that doctrine. They don't even know what Protestant means. What are you protesting? Um, it's just all feeling, and uh, you know, very little about what we actually believe, and a faith once for all delivered. Um, and that's why we're going back to the catechism again. Well, so let's think about this a little bit, because this is really, really comforting. Um, you know, he, he, it says... I believe that God, because of Christ's atonement, and when we're talking about Christ's atonement, what do we, what do we mean by that? What, do we, what comes to mind when you think of Christ's atonement? His death, yeah, his death on the cross, his priestly act of putting away our sins. Um, so atonement, you know, is a covering for sins, a, a putting away of sins. So all those sacrifices in the Old Covenant uh, sacrifices of atonement, you had the day of atonement. Um, they were all types and shadows of what would come in Christ. Uh, so 
Christ's atonement is the real atoning act that puts away our sins. I believe that God, because of Christ's atonement, will never hold against me any of my sins, nor my sinful nature with which I need to struggle all my life. Now, is there, a, is there a particular passage in the New Testament that comes to mind when you hear that line? Romans 7. What is Romans 7? You know, Romans 7 is that, that great passage that uh, Paul, after laying out the gospel in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, saying that we are not in Adam, we are in Christ. We are not in... He teases this out more than eight. We are not in the flesh. We are in the spirit. Uh, we are in the, there's a, been a category change. And one of the category changes that he mentions is we are no longer slaves to sin. We are free. And he teases that out in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, he says, yeah, but the problem is, is I still have these evil desires. And, uh, and I find myself wrestling with sin. And so... He talks about how the law came, and it, sh- it, it killed him. It showed him that he's not alive as he thought. And so if you look in Romans chapter 7, um, I'll just pick up at uh, verse 13. Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Did, what, did that which is good then, the law, good, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. That's what the law does. It shows us that it's sin that has brought death. The law is not bad. We have a tendency sometimes to think, oh, the law is bad. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good and holy and true. And if we don't like the law, we don't like God. And sometimes they've heard, you know, Pastor, I, you know, there was a lot of law in that sermon. You know, um, and it, you know, it's like, yeah, you didn't like that, did you? Yeah, I don't like it either. You know why? Because I don't like God in my sinful, polluted heart. I got a problem with law, I got a problem with God. And uh, as, sin, as sinners, we don't like God, and we don't like His law, it reflects Him. There's nothing wrong with the law. Now, a sermon that only has law, and there's no gospel, well, that, that's not, there's not a lot of hope there. Um, I don't think I've ever preached one of those sermons, though. Uh, I mean, I'm open to being corrected, but I don't think I've ever preached a sermon where there was no gospel. I can see one of the elders shaking his head, absolutely not. Um, you know, I don't preach the best sermons in the world, but they, uh, it should be always gospel-centered, Christ-centered. But just because it had law that convicted you of your sin, there was nothing wrong with the law. The problem is in our hearts. The problem is we don't like to hear correction. And uh, it's the, but without the law, as we learn in benefit of Christ, we, we can't appreciate the gospel. So this is what Paul's saying here. Um, it was what was good that showed me the sin. For we know that the law, verse 14, is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. Again, you have to read this in context of the previous chapters. You're free. You're in Christ. You're justified. You're new. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells within me. In other words, you're new, but you still have the sinful pollution that uh, causes you to still do the things you don't want to do, you know, and you lose your temper again. You say, when am I going to stop losing my temper? Well, when there's no sin in your heart. When am I going to stop being an, idol- an idolater? Well, when there's no sin in your heart. So just get rid of all the sin in your heart, and you'll be fine. The problem is you can't. It's always there. You're being sanctified, and you have the Spirit dwelling in you, convicting you of sin, and telling you, don't go, that, don't go over there. You're new. Be what God has made you. But the fact is that we won't be freed from sin until when? No, until when will you be freed from sin? When you die. Because you're not going to sin anymore after you die. You'll be freed from sinning. There is, there is one thing to be looking forward to about your death. You'll cease from your sinning on that day. Now, when Christ returns is when you give the, the, the final application of all your salvation, you receive the resurrected body. But you don't sin anymore once you die. But you will sin until, that, until, the, until, that, until the end. And it's a fight. It's a struggle. But it's only the person who's indwelt by the Spirit that struggles and has a fight. And that's what Paul is getting at here. For I know, verse 18, that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Now that's opposite from what our world, our culture tells us, right? Trust your heart, follow your heart. Um, Paul says, I have nothing good that dwells in me, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We desire to be holy, but we find that we can't be holy as God is holy. We have the struggle. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I love how it acts. I mean, it shows Paul at times losing his temper, you know, saying things that, you know, he wishes he could take those words back. Um, you know, he, he, he is not a perfectly holy man. He has this dispute with Barnabas. And, uh, yeah, we can say, yeah, they had the dispute, and then the church increased as they went away. Yeah, but it's not prescriptive. That doesn't mean, see, elders, you need to fight with each other more often, and then the church will continue. No, the Lord, he, he keeps his promise even though we mess things up. Uh, in other words, Acts paints Paul just as the whole Bible paints every saint as also a sinner. I mean, pick one guy from Scripture that you would say, that's the example that I want to be. Um, some people would say, well, maybe Daniel, because there's really nothing um, uh, you know, sinful, exaggerated about him. But that's not, that misses the point. The, the only guy is Christ. That's why you have him. He's your Savior. I mean, the rest of them, who wrote the Psalms? Yeah, and who was David? A conspirator, an abuser of power, uh, a murderer, uh, an, an adulterer. That is not a prescription for those things. In fact, all those things left a mess in his life. And they were shameful, and they hurt, and it, was, it brought problems to his family. But it shows us that Christ came for sinners. He came for sinners. He didn't come for perfect people. And we all know that, right? We know that we're sinners, and we need a Savior. But also know that your sinful nature, or the sins that you have, 
God won't hold against you in the sinful nature with which you have to struggle all your life. He's not going to hold that against you either because Christ has already paid for it. And this is where Romans 7 can help us because we see the, 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 you know, the desire that Paul has is to follow the Lord. And yet he has this dismay that he doesn't do it perfectly. He fails at times. He goes, now verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That is something that a non-Christian cannot say. Only the believer can say that. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In fact, let's just look at verse 22. Kind of keep your finger there. And um, look down at verse 7 of chapter 8. It says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's the description of the, the person who does not have the Holy Spirit. He has no desire to submit to God. Is hostile toward God. Is hostile to God's law. You can't tell me what to do. The believer says, yeah, I realize it's right. I don't like it all the time, but I know that I need to follow God's commands. And we have this desire to do what is right, and yet we fail in carrying out the desires as we should. That's Paul's whole point. Back at verse 23, but I see in my members, by the way, verse 22 is the, the evidence. There's been some people who said, well, Paul's not describing a Christian Romans 7, which is just nutty. Because if verse, verse 22 says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. A, a non-Christian cannot say that. That you delight in the law in your inner being. Only somebody who's been regenerated and has a love for the Lord in his word now. And that's been the majority view. Um, there's been some people like Martin Lloyd-Jones and others who've held to the Arminian. The Arminian view was that this is actually a Christian who has not yet... Uh, been baptized with the Holy Spirit or received the, a second blessing or isn't walking in the Spirit, um, that, it's, that just does violence to the, the text. The, this is clearly somebody who is in Christ, who delights in Christ and delights in the Word, but struggles to, to uh, carry it out. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So we feel like slaves, even though we're not. Wretched man that I am, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then, so then I, with my, myself, serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So there's the struggle that goes on. There's a struggle. But where is the, the assurance that we, are, that we are right with God? In the very next verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Christ, uh, we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, made acceptable to God, and we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit who instructs us in righteousness, convicts us of sin, leads us in the, the path of our Savior. 
And that is why we feel so bad about sin and why we feel like failures most of the time. But the, the blessing of confessing the forgiveness of sins is to know that because of Jesus Christ, God won't hold my sins against me, nor the sinful nature with which I must struggle all my life. Now the antinomian, that word antinomian, you may have, maybe you've heard that phrase before. Anti just means against, right? And nomian comes from the word namos, which is in Greek, law. The antinomian basically is somebody who says, I'm a Christian and I can go live like a sinner all I want. And it's okay, because God doesn't hold my sins against me. That person's not a believer. He doesn't struggle. He doesn't struggle. The person who is a believer has a struggle. And who says, yeah, God won't hold any of my sins against me, but I hate my sin. I hate my sin. And I want to honor the Lord. And I want to do what's right. And I'm not just going to do more sin uh, so that grace can abound. And Paul addressed that in Romans 6. The antinomian misunderstands grace and misunderstands the law and is actually just as legalistic as the legalist. They, they still haven't left their legalism, and they found this as being the antidote to, um, to the, their, their own misunderstanding of the law, but it's just replacing one misunderstanding with another. The Christian is somebody who understands, no, I, God will not hold any of my sins against me, nor my sinful nature with which I must struggle all my life. You see the difference. The antinomian would have to scratch out part of, of answer 56. It would just say, well, never hold against me any of my sins. Woohoo! So let's just go out and sin it up. Well, Christ didn't come to, to uh, make us guilt-free so that we can sin more. That's not the point of his death on the cross. Why did Christ come? To redeem us from sin and to redeem us from its power, to redeem us from lawlessness and to make people who are zealous for good works. That, that, that's Titus 2. Uh, he, he came to make us alive, not so that we would walk in death anymore, you know, in some kind of false uh, uh, freedom of, of uh, you know, being free from guilt, but rather that we would walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. And that's why we come to church, right? Because we love the Lord. And we want, and we want, to, we want to know again that we are forgiven, because I've been struggling all week long with my thoughts, my, my words, my actions. I know I'm a sinner, a big one. And, and that's why we have the Lord's Supper. It's grace for sinners. We have this desire to know that we are right with God, and we have a desire to live for Him. And that's what makes confessing the forgiveness of sins such a blessing. It's not a license to go out and be as unfaithful as you possibly can be. Rather, it is the assurance that Christ came to save sinners. And he is working in your life. And, 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 and the fact that you feel bad about your sin, and you feel like a B-class, C-class, D-class sinner, is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Questions on that? And on Romans 7.
Well, yeah, I mean, is Paul an antinomian when he's, when he's saying everything in Romans 7? How would, an, how would an antinomian say Romans 7? It wouldn't exist in Romans 7. He would say, we're all free to sin, so go out, go to orgies, because that's what they did in the first century, worship idols, um, go out and, you know, have as many children from as many girlfriends as possible, do whatever you want, ruin the world, start wars, kill each other, doesn't matter, you're all forgiven. That's the antinomian, Romans 7. Be as heinous and evil as you possibly can be, for grace, more grace will abound. Well, we know that's not right, right? That, that's not, that can't be right. No, the idea is simply that in the forgiveness of sins, yet we, we may find ourselves in our sinfulness going back to that direction or to this direction. Everybody, everybody is both Pharisee and uh, antinomian. In, in you a little bit, and you have a pendulum, and it swings back and forth. And some of us are more prone to this, and some of us are more prone to this. And uh, what we need to do, both of them misunderstand grace. This is like, well, grace is there to be earned by my works. This is, well, grace is just a license so that I can go and be as rotten as I want. They're both a misunderstanding of grace. And you're right, John, that we have a tendency in our immaturity to kind of go back and forth. But neither of them, it, it's a misunderstanding of the gospel in both places. Um, this is the prodigal son in the, in, the, in the big city. This is the older brother. And what does the prodigal son do? He comes back to the father, recognizing he's been stupid, totally stupid. He's just wasted everything. It didn't get him anywhere living like that. And what does the father do? He says, that's right, you stupid antinomian. You need to be more like your brother. You know? And no, he's, the father wraps him in his arms, and he's, he's full of grace and mercy and forgiveness because that's what the father is. Both of, these misunderst- both of these are afraid that God is going to hold my sins against me somehow. So this one convinces, this one works as hard as he can so that, well, I'm relying upon all that I've done so that God will accept me, so that in the end he might weigh out my good from my bad and I'll have more good than bad. This one just convinces himself with some false idea that um, it doesn't really matter any, what I do at all and uh, I can go out and be as evil as I want. Whereas the, the Christian recognizes, no, God is good and sin is evil. And the law is good, and the law shows me evil. And I want to do the law. I can't keep the law, and that's why I have Christ. Christ has kept the law for me. But in my life, I'm going to make it my aim to please the Lord. Not to win his favor, because Christ won that favor for me. But simply because I love him. He's shown me everything. And he loves me more than I love him. And that just causes me to love him more. And I, and I want to please him. Even, you know, even if it means denying myself something that my sinful heart wants. Um, I want to please him because he's good and his law is right and it's true. And so, the, again, the, the law then, which says, do this and you shall live, is answered by the gospel, which says, Christ did this for you. And now, when we, the Christian hears the law, as Paul points out, it should simply be, do this because you live, 
not in order to live, but because you live. Be what God has made you. Walk in those good works that Christ has prepared beforehand. And walk in newness of life, which we all know in our hearts is, is what is right. But in that struggle, and when you feel like, oh, man, I haven't been walking, I'm just a mess, loved one, know that God does not hold your struggle against you. A struggle. The struggle is the pain and the, and the, feel, the feeling of disappointment in yourself and your, and your failure. And it doesn't mean stop struggling. It means that God's not going to hold your struggle against you. You see the difference? Uh, Kim Riddlebarger always likes to put it in. Um, Kim Riddlebarger is the pastor of the URC in Anaheim, and he's been kind of like a big brother to me for many years. And he's, uh, he always says that he looks at Romans 7 like uh, in World War II terms. He loves World War II um, history. And Normandy, uh, D-Day, was the decisive victory for the Allies over the Axis. And, uh, but it did, that didn't end the war right there, even though that was essentially the end. I mean, they, they invaded Europe, the Allies, um, but there was still a campaign of skirmishes and kind of mopping up everything. If you've seen the, the film uh, Band of Brothers, you know, they land at Normandy, and that is essentially the victory of the Allies over the Axis, but there was about another 18 months or so of uh, skirmishes and, and fighting off the Nazis, you know, until they finally surrendered. And uh, even though they essentially had been defeated, you know, at Normandy. And the same is true in our lives as Christians. Uh, Christ has already won the victory, and yet there is, and we've been clothed in his righteousness and united with him and we're indwelt by his spirit. But there is, nevertheless, this great fight and struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil throughout our lives. And the, you know, I'm never worried about the Christian who comes in and is just broken and says, Pastor, I've got to talk to you. I'm a mess. I'm not worried about that. I rejoice in that person. The person I'm worried about is the one who never does that. And he says, I don't need to. T- I, I, I'm, I'm fine. And just uh, justifies his sin or her sin. And, uh, and just thinks everything, you know, I don't, have to, I don't need to confess anything. Uh, there is no struggle. That's the person I'm concerned about. Not the bruised reed. I'm concerned about the person with the stiff neck. That's a, that's, a, uh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Well, I don't think a legalist is going to be very comfortable in a church that's gospel-saturated. A legalist is not going to be comfortable in a church where there's Lord's Supper every week, where um, it's said again and again, um, this, you know, don't let your weakness in faith or your failures in the Christian life keep you from this table. The legalist doesn't like that. The legalist tends to think of the, the Lord's Supper as a reward for my faithfulness through the week, as sadly much of American evangelicalism does. Um, the legalist won't like sermons that are centered, that the, the, the point of the sermon is redemption in Christ. Um, 
So, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I'm, I'm nevertheless... There is a little legalist in each of us, right? And, and if we, if there were, I guess I could conceive of a situation where you'd have somebody who really thought they were earning their way to heaven through their own merit, they would need to be talked to. But I'll tell you one thing that has happened many times is, um, you know, the elders and I have had to you know, talk with people usually individually. Um, not very often, but it's happened over the years a few times where maybe there's someone saying, um, these are my convictions uh, about a particular area of life. And I think every Christian should have these same convictions and you are in sin if you don't have these convictions. So, for example, um, you know, uh, Christian kids shouldn't go to public school. And parents are in sin if they're sending their kids to public school. Well, okay, you know, that, that is a decision for the parents to make. And the fact is, I, I've seen, I understand public schools, public education, it's not good. But I've also seen many times Christian parents who homeschooled or sent their kids to Christian schools, and those kids are not well catechized. And they failed in their duty to catechize the kids in the faith. Um, but they can't, a parent can't put that, bind the consciences of everybody else to his own personal conviction. Or, well, women shouldn't wear, women shouldn't, some of this is cultural from place to place. I'm not talking about this church now, but another church I know. Women shouldn't wear sleeveless shirts to church or any kind of a heel because it'll tempt the men. And um, again, we're talking about wisdom issues. But as soon as you start with a checklist and you're trying to bind everyone's conscience to your own personal conviction, now you're guilty of legalism. And that person would probably, probably need to be talked to. Yeah. I don't know if anyone has ever been excommunicated for legalism. I, you know, I think I've wanted to excommunicate a few legalists. But, uh, yeah. It's a great question. It's a very good, insightful question. Have you ever heard the absolution? Have you ever come to have you ever heard the words of institution of the Lord's Supper? Have you ever heard a sermon that didn't have the person work of Christ proclaim? That's how I would answer it. I'd say I, that's what we receive every week. So yeah, we we hear about our sin, that's called the law. Like, see again, they don't like the law. Now what is that if they don't like the law? But then what's interesting is a lot of times people who they'll invent their own laws. And that's legalism. So now they're both. They're doing both. And that happens a lot, you know, because you've got to replace God's laws with your own laws. We need to live for God. And pray tell, what does that look like? And they'll tell you. They'll tell you what it looks like. You need to go on short-term missions. You need to do this. You need to, the whole evangelical menu of, yeah, no, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. And they have the whole, they have the whole you know, their own Ten Commandments, basically. So they're doing both now. 
But the way I would answer that is simply, we need to hear God's law, Romans 1 through 3, and yeah, that's going to convict us of our sin. But then we also hear the gospel, Romans you know, 3 through 8. And, and without the law, we don't appreciate the gospel. And, uh, and again, it's the, when we say the forgiveness of sins, it means something. I think sometimes the evangelical tends to think that, well, that happened when I asked Jesus in my heart. And, uh, you know, I don't need to do that anymore. That's not what Paul's saying in Romans 7. Paul's talking about this dismay, this grief, this pain that he has in his heart, godly sorrow, which you know what that feels like. Every Christian knows what that feels like. And if you don't know what that feels like, set up an appointment with me before I leave for Italy because we need to talk. Godly sorrow, pain in your heart, where you're just like, man, I have failed. That's the Holy Spirit working in our heart. And that's why we come back again and again to receive the absolution, to receive the Lord's Supper. So if someone accuses Reformed theology of focusing on sin, I would say it's only there to focus on Christ and the forgiveness of sins and to focus on the gospel. But without hearing about our sin and the law, then there's really no good news. And sadly, that's what happens today, is that it's all just kind of mushed together. You know, it's not guilt, grace, gratitude. It's just, as you said, live for God, and what does that look like? And they'll tell you. You vote this way, you listen to this kind of music, you know, they have their own laws. So there was another hand. So the interesting part is Right, right. That's right. That's right, and we need to. If we're, do, if we're a Christian like Paul who feels that pain in Romans 7, we need that every week, right? I mean, I, I do. And, and, to, and that's when we confess the forgiveness of sins. I mean, think, listen to it again. God will never hold against me any of my sins nor my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. I mean, essentially, it's almost, it almost sounds like they're saying there's no struggle. Rather, in his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. To know that my conscience that still accuses me, that I haven't lived up to God's standards, that it is not the Lord of my life, that Christ is the Lord of my life. And he says, Mike, you are forgiven. Even though your conscience accuses you, even though Satan still accuses I I was brought under the judgment of the Father. I need to hear that again and again, not just at one harvest crusade, which really didn't even tell me that news anyway. It was really just, you know, ask Jesus in your heart and your life will be different. And um, yeah, the forgiveness of sins is there, but let's face it, it's, it's a little bit different. It's a totally different view of the Christian life. Whereas, you know, historically, Protestants have understood this to be something that we live in and walk in and enjoy and uh, come to again and again. Again, which is why we need the Lord's Supper, you know, week after week. Okay. Any other questions on question 56 or on Romans 7? Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. So that's what they would try to write that off as. Yeah, that's what I said earlier. That was Jacob Arminius's view. That's the Arminian view. And, and there have been some, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who held that view. And I think it's just nutty. That's why I go back to verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. How can a non-Christian delight in the law of God in his inner being? Especially when he says in Romans 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. So people who hold that Romans 7 is not a Christian, I don't know how you get there because you have these categories. Uh, if, you, if you are in Christ, you, have, you delight in the law of God in the inner being. If you are outside of Christ, you are hostile to the law of God and you will not submit to the law of God. Those are Paul's two categories. So I think by reading Romans 7 in that way, I mean, it just does violence to the text. And uh, then you end up in one of these two, the perfectionist who thinks he can live above the struggle. Well, I'm not like Romans, Paul in Romans 7. Or the antinomian who thinks, well, I can just live without the struggle. Because um, it just doesn't matter, you know, what I do in, in the body. I can go do whatever I want. And, and that's not true. And, and remember, too, the Lord, he, he was going to reward us for, you know, our faithfulness in this life. He, it's going to be far greater and above anything that we ever deserved. But the, the work that you do is not meaningless in this life. The, the New Testament is filled with promises of God's great reward to us for our, our faithfulness to him. And we're always going to feel like Matthew 25, you know, what did I do? When did I feed you, Lord? When did I clothe you? When did I visit you in prison? And yet God is going to reward us for things that we didn't even realize we were doing. Uh, because you're new. And you have a desire to please the Lord. And so we don't, li- we don't try to live above the struggle or without the struggle. We live in the struggle. And that, living in that struggle means that I need to come back again and again to know God will not hold my sins against me, nor the struggle with which I must engage throughout my life because Christ was judged in my place. But I have to hear that again and again. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ who has delivered us from this body of death. And because of his finished work, you will never hold against us any of our sins, nor the sinful nature with which we must struggle all our lives. And we thank you for the Spirit who convicts us of sin, who pulls us in the right direction, who again and again shows us that we are sinners, but also that Christ was judged in our place, that he who knew, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become your righteousness and not be slaves to sin. So help us, we pray, Father, throughout the struggle, throughout the Christian life. And may we rejoice to know that we walk in the freedom Uh, of your good pleasure and of the gospel. And may we rejoice in your gospel to know that we will never be judged on the last day for Christ has been judged in our place. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.